before I start the introductions, how many administrators do we have out there? Administrators? Okay, what about general education teachers? Special ed or support staff? Awesome. These are my people. Welcome. <laughs> All right, my name is Liz Fox. I'm director of student support services at Brookfield Christian School in Wisconsin. I am co-presenting with Allie Spofford here. She's our reading instructionalist and elementary Spanish teacher. BCS is a 3K to 8 school. We have an enrollment of just under 300. We've been working towards implementing a multi-tiered system of support framework for about the last three years. We say this to tell you that we, we don't have all the answers and we're just at the beginning of this process. Uh, we haven't figured it out and we're no, by no means experts in the area. We are, we're in our own place on the continuum of inclusion, which that we'll, allow, we'll refer to later and look, look a little bit more into that. We're hoping that this can just be a time for you to reflect um, on where your school is at and maybe ask the question, can we do better and what's the next step for our school or your classroom. So where are you currently in the process? Where do you want to go and how will you get there? Earlier this year, a group of our teachers, eight of us, attended a statewide conference hosted by our public school district. This was the first time that private and parochial schools were invited to this. It was called iSummit 19. We had some nationally known speakers there. Um, our favorite was Shelly Moore. She has a podcast, a lot of, um, you may know her, a lot of different books, and you'll actually hear from her later in, in a video. The focus of the conference was on inclusion. She's a Canadian. She speaks from personal experience uh, from being marginalized in her school. She um, was diagnosed with, she has attention learning differences, diagnosed with SLD, short-term memory delay, and executive, and really struggled with this executive functioning so much that she, she failed to the point of crisis that she, she did, was, didn't receive any support until she went to an alternative school. Um, so she speaks, uh, she's a strong advocate for inclusion and um, in, inspiring to speak about all students who are marginalized. Um, so in this video, you'll see her describe the evolution of inclusion. Listen for the continuum of inclusion that she talks about and how that's evolved over time, all the way from institutionalization to now. Um, as you watch, think about where your school might be on the continuum. Welcome to Five More Minutes, useful videos in five minutes or less that support the teaching and learning of all students. I'm your host, Shelly Moore. Today's topic is the evolution of inclusion. Okay, so you remember the dots? I know, I know, I know. I've shown you these before. But one colleague of mine suggested to me once, he goes, what if we didn't look at these as different concepts that we compare to each other, but instead as an evolution of time? It was totally brilliant. Now we can look at this timeline through the lens of any marginalized population, but to understand this timeline from the inclusion and disability perspective, we have to go back in time a little bit. Many of us know or are connected to someone who experienced institutionalization. It was even recommended to families by doctors. Although British Columbia was the first province in Canada to close down their institutions, there are still individuals living in these conditions across Canada today. The institutionalization movement is an example of exclusion. It separated individuals with disabilities from their families without choice. But the disability rights movement over the past 50 years, with the hard work of some incredible self-advocates and families, and maybe a little help from the world over there, pushed communities to shift so that individuals of all abilities were welcomed and living in the same settings as their family and friends. This shift from institutions to communities, this was the start of the inclusive evolution. We have movement, but can we do better? Although many individuals are no longer excluded from their families and communities, they were, and let's be honest, they still are, expected to attend segregated schools or self-contained special education programs that are totally separate from the rest of the school community. And so parents started to ask some very good questions. You see, children with disabilities have siblings without disabilities, and families wanted all their kids to have equitable access to community-based education together. Kids started to be integrated into classrooms with their peers. They're in math together. They're in gym class together. They're eating lunch together. Kids are together. This is better. 
The shift from segregated to integrated schools or classrooms, this is the next step in the evolution of inclusion. We have movement, but can we do better? Well, this is where things get tricky because integration, it doesn't take long to realize that just being together, it's not enough. Although in the same classroom, students with disabilities are often just that. They're physically in the classroom. They may sometimes have parallel activities, but mostly it's loosely connected classroom tasks. Now you don't need me to tell you that just physically sharing space and time is enough to make you feel like you belong in a community. I mean, come on, there are Disney movies made about this. Breathing the same air is not enough. Do you remember the Titans? I do. The evolution from integration to inclusion is now the topic of many conversations in communities and schools around the world. How do we support individuals to be meaningfully included and not just physically integrated? It's not just about where kids go in their day, but why? What is the purpose to the places that they go? It's now school-based teams and staff that are asking questions about how to do this. How can we support purposeful and meaningful placements for kids with disabilities? In inclusive classrooms and schools, students aren't just present, but they have roles and responsibilities in their classrooms and also meaningfully connected to their peers. This is inclusion. So there you have it, my friends. A brief history of inclusion in about five minutes. If this is interesting to you though, definitely investigate your local history as well, because every community is in a different place in this journey, and it's so valuable to know where we come from. The other thing though, is looking at these visuals as a timeline, it really helped me to shift my own thinking from, which bubble am I at or not at, and shift to more of a, where are we now in our inclusive journey and what's our next step? All of a sudden, the goal of inclusion becomes action-oriented. It just feels so much more possible. We may not all be at the same place in the journey, but we can all move forward. We can do better. And so this is the question I'm going to leave you with today. Can we still do better? Do you think there's another evolution in inclusion? What might that be? How can we inch even more forward to make inclusion a Thanks, Geraldo. fun in, in person or right in front of you live. Um, so interesting, so when we look at that continuum, right, we see the exclusion, the segregation, right, when students are in, in those self-contained classrooms, right, same school, self-contained. Now they're integrated, right, but might have a different teacher within that classroom. And then the inclusion, right, now maybe co-servicing with that general education teacher, but still seeing as having a learning attention or behavior difference, see that? And then the teaching to diversity, I love what she said. You know, look at all the green here. Those are our typical, our neurotypical kids, right? And then the colors. But you see over here in teaching to diversity, uh, there's one green, but there are no, right? They all have a variance of color. And I just think that's such a perfect um, picture such a good picture of us as Christians, right? We're all created for a purpose and have this uniqueness about us that no student is the same. Therefore, we need to teach to diversity, teach to those individual strengths um, instead of putting the, the colored special educators, the colored teachers with the colored dots outside, right? We are better together. And I love, um, you know, what Shelly said, the question she always asked, can we do better? What can we do? What's the next step? Um, so how do we teach the diversity of students? It can't be, it's not realistic to be 30 individualized uh, plans, right, education plans, or our ISBs, or whatever your schools call them, right? It's not realistic. Shelly talked about inclusion as an invitation, ensuring that students have access and opportunity. They're, they're, it's more than just physical integration. It's, it's strengthening by, it's, it's, it's organizing by strength, not by disability. Notice how in the segregation and integration, they're, they're organized by deficits, not by strengths. I just think um, what our schools, you know, that can be just a really good goal for us. Uh, inclusion is valuing and responding to all, all learners. So think about that, reflect with a, a colleague or store um, with yourself, where's your school right now? Maybe what are you doing to move to the next the next step? We'll take just a minute to talk.
the book Out of My Mind. That's, that's what we're going to talk about next. Great book. Our fourth grade um, teacher actually did that as a read aloud in a workshop this last month. And uh, for those of you who don't know, this is a book about um, a girl, Melody. She's the main character, and she's uh, wheelchair to get around, assistive technology to talk. She has a disability, uh, physical and cognitive. Uh, um, our students were asked, our fourth grade teacher asked our students, they would reflect on what it would be like if they would like to see more people, more students with disabilities, more classmates with disabilities at our school. Here are a few of the responses. Our images got a little messed up, so I'm going to read them out for you. Um, top left student said, I think it would be really cool to have more kids at our school because if we had an inclusion at our school, because if I, would, if I had a disability, I would love to be part of a real class. It would be amazing. And then she says about herself, I would love to help. Bottom left student says, I would like people with disabilities because I have a disability. And then on the right, the one that got a little cropped off, um, I would say that it would be good because it doesn't matter if you have a disability. They can do the same stuff as we can, but they just need a little bit more help to do it. Was his, um, his takeaway, yeah. his reflection. This morning, something that David Smith said uh, really spoke to me. I think it, it is relevant here. He said, as teachers, you have an enormous cultural power, right? And I think we have this in our classrooms, building and creating a culture of acceptance and appreciation for differences uh, in diversity in our, in our school. Um, we have a chance to educate and to try and normalize and get rid of the stigma of differences. And, um, I think some ways that we can do this is maybe a read-aloud, like our, our fourth grade teacher did, a discussion, um, bringing in a guest speaker, an expert in an area um, that's related to the student's disability. Um, there's a lot of really good children's literature out there. Thank you, Mr. Falker, by Patricia Polacco, for example, who speaks on dyslexia. I've um, read that book to a, a class before that we have a student um, in their classroom to help them understand how the student Um, so try, just trying to build culture and normalize supports within the classroom. Um, and that starts with classroom teachers. It, I think, moves and spreads out to our students as we send that message. All right, so we want to share with you briefly a few resources to maybe help your school or your classroom better their inclusion practices. So these are from Shelly Moore at fivemoreminutes.com. She has a lot of great videos, podcasts, and then a free resource that goes along with that that is really practical and helps you put into practice what she just taught you. So here is the resource that goes with the first video that she has that we just showed you, um, and a, a place alignment planner, and we have copies of these available up here at the front if you want to take one, or you can go to the website and download it yourself. So this is really for a student who might not be in the general education classroom right now, um, 100%. So what you would do here, you as teacher, or preferably with a team, would determine, okay, where are the peers, if it's a third grade student, where are all the third graders? Uh, what are they doing? Where are they located? Where is the student with differences? What is he doing? Where is he located, right? to kind of problem solve and determine where are their differences, where the student isn't with his peers, and then on the, on the side there, um, just a way to help you plan priority. Where could we improve his inclusion? Um, what's the most, um, just to prioritize that. So that's a resource there for a student who may not be fully included right now that you could use. Another resource that we recently used with a first grader at our school is the Purpose Planner. So as um, she said in the video, integration without purpose is not inclusion. So this is to use for a specific subject or a specific class in order to determine what is this student with a disability or a learning or attention difference, what is their purpose during this time? Because we know that sometimes it's different than the purpose or the goal of the rest of the class. So here's an example of how this looked with a first grade student in our school who is diagnosed with autism. We focused on reading because we noticed that his 
social goals on his individualized learning plan were not being met in Reader's workshop in, in the classroom. And so we brainstormed and we said, what are, the, what are the parts of Reader's workshop? And then what is his social purpose, right? This student is already reading on grade level and didn't need the same learning purpose, same intellectual purpose as the rest of his peers. So this is what it looked like when we filled this out. Okay, so these are the parts of Reader's Workshop in this first grade classroom. Mini lesson, the goal for the class is to learn a reading strategy, whole group, on the rug. And you'll see why that place is important later. Independent reading, the goal for the class is to practice the reading strategy that they just learned and to increase their reading stamina independently. Partner reading, this is going to be an important part for this student. The goal for the class is to share books with peers to discuss their reading and to promote their reading fluency. So then we said, okay, so for this student with autism, high-functioning autism, what is his social purpose? During the mini lesson, he doesn't really need the same reading strategy that his peers need, but his purpose is to sit on the rug with his peers and to raise his hand and participate in the lesson. And that was our goal for him, was to, he was choosing to sit away from his peers during that time. So our goal was that he was with the community. His social purpose during independent reading was to read without distracting those around me, and we focused on not making noises, humming, or other behaviors that were causing a social barrier with some of his peers because they were distracting them from their learning. And then his social purpose during partner reading was, how do I interact with my assigned partners appropriately? And we focused on, who is his assigned partner? How can we strategically pick that partner? help coach them as well into how to interact with the students during partner reading, right? Because he can already read. His goal is to learn how to interact with his peers. And we did add one intellectual purpose for him, and that was to read three books independently and then take a break. He was struggling a little bit with his reading stamina. So as you can see, if you're using this, um, either on your own or with a team, it's flexible what column you fill out, right? You don't have to fill out every column. For every, uh, for every student. Intellectual purpose, how do I belong in my learning community? Social purpose, how do I belong with my peers? And personal purpose, just what is my role in this community? All right, so again, we have those up front here. And I want you to just stop, take a minute. Um, what are you thinking? How can you improve inclusion for a student in your school or in your classroom? If you would like to come up and grab a planner, we have them right here if you want to even start filling one of those out. Um, we're just going to take about a minute for you to reflect on your own or with a colleague or stranger who's next to you. <laughs> yeah, come on up and take a, yeah, for the first few right there, but there's more over there. a little handout happy so feel free to recycle what you don't need <laughs> later. If you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand and interject. Yes, good point. All right, kind of the third piece of our um, of our presentation here. We're going to kind of switch gears a little bit. 
and talk about a multi-tiered system of support, MPSS. What is it and how could it look in a Christian school? So some of this information might be new to you, some of it might be old hat, so you'll just have to bear with me as we maybe do a little bit of a review if you're already familiar with this. So this is our traditional response to intervention, RTI model. We've probably all seen this before, right? Um, RTI exists within a multi-tiered system of support framework specifically focusing on academic needs, whereas MTSS as a whole could also hit social, emotional, and behavioral needs. So as you can see, pretty self-explanatory, right? Tier one, core classroom instruction given by the general educator. When this is robust and differentiated, the large majority of the students should be able to access the content, 80% or more. And then we see tier two when we determine that um, some students are not accessing tier one content, targeted small group interventions. And then if students um, do not respond to that targeted small group intervention, that's when we move to tier three and have an individualized, um, an individualized pretty intensive intervention. And after tier three, right, is when we start to involve special educator more and maybe look at is there an evaluation that needs to happen to further diagnose, better diagnose the student's needs. Here's another way to look at it. I personally prefer this model because um, the tiers are the same, the percentages and the meanings of each tier are the same, but the horizontal presentation of it emphasizes the fact that students should be moving and that with the exception of tier one, they should not be permanently in tier two or permanently in tier three. Because if we find that a student is permanently in tier two or permanently in tier three, we need to change something. We either need to change the intervention or the instructional approach that's happening, or we need to look at changing them to a different tier, right? So just another way to look at the same framework. Here are um, five components of MTSS. First, we have our universal screener, right? This is a, usually a standardized national norm test. We use STAR, some schools use MAPS. You might have another universal screener, but this is kind of our baseline data point for if students are responding to tier one instruction. And again, that's only one data point given three times a year as, as a baseline to determine that. And then as I previously talked about, a tiered approach is a key component of a multi-tiered system of support. Thirdly, and um, I think most importantly, collaboration is key for this framework of responding to student needs to be successful. This collaboration includes general educator, special educator, administration, um, specialists, instructionalists, and, and aides. Whoever is involved in giving the instruction needs to work together for it to be most beneficial for the students. Evidence-based interventions Right? For tier two and tier three, we need to make sure that we're choosing the intervention or the instructional approach very carefully. It shouldn't be random. It shouldn't, it needs to be intentionally chosen, something that is explicit and is building upon itself, right? And then lastly, progress monitoring. So how are we keeping track when we have students in tier two and tier three interventions? How are we keeping track of their progress? This could be as simple as anecdotal notes about how that group went, right? And it could be as detailed as using a tool like AIMS or EZCBM to track more specific data. The higher the tier, the more specific the data should be because you're getting a little bit more high stakes at that point. Any questions about this? Um, one way that schools often implement an MTSS framework is by uh, scheduling an intervention block. So we recently visited some other CSI schools to learn from them and to learn how we could better improve our practice at BCS. And this was one thing that we came away with as a possible next step for us or a possible uh, just thing to consider, right? So when we look at an intervention block, here are some common questions that people usually ask. An intervention block is a scheduled time, usually about 30 minutes, three to five times a week, where teachers and special educators and whoever else is giving instruction have the opportunity to give that instruction because 
tier two instruction, and tier three needs to be an addition to the core classroom content. So, the first question that teachers usually ask is, what are all my tier one students doing during this 30 minute block? How can I give them a tier two intervention? What's everyone else doing? So this depends on the school and the personnel avail available. We found that in some schools that we visited, tier one students were working on individual goals, individual enrichment activities. Some schools chose to have all students met with in a small group to destigmatize the intervention. And so there were, right, some students were being enriched, some students were reinforcing tier one content, and some students were um, receiving intervention. Who gives the instruction? Um, whoever you have was qualified. So this could be the general education teacher. This could be instructionalists or instructional aides, special educators, right? Um, the higher the tier, the more qualified the person should be giving the intervention. So if at tier two, your classroom teacher might be the most qualified person to give that intervention. Um, or um, we saw a lot of schools utilizing instructionalists and instructional aides to come in and, and give those interventions. Where does this happen? Anywhere you have room. <laughs> can all powwow in one room, can spread out across the school. Who plans for the instruction? This was a, a question that we asked and that a lot of times classroom teachers ask, right? Who's planning for all of these groups? And it depends on personnel, again, and administrative decisions. Some schools expected classroom teachers to provide materials for aides to, to use in their small groups. Some schools expected instructional aides to, to bring those materials and provide them. We did find that at Tier 2 instruction, the classroom teacher is really the best person um, to kind of be over that because they know their curriculum oftentimes the best and they know their students the best, right? And then um, when does this happen? Some schools chose to do that as part of their literacy or math block. Some schools chose to do that as a separate block altogether. And then lastly, the benefits, right, are many. Because if all students are receiving the targeted instruction that they need, growth is going to happen. The benefits to the classroom teacher are that they know their students better, and that the benefits to the school is that everyone is able to collaborate more. Because in order to do this well, every six weeks, when you, you need to come together to determine, was this intervention working, was it not? And that's where your progress monitoring data comes in. So those are kind of some questions that people usually ask. Do you have any other questions about this? And I wonder if we could just, um, if you guys could just tell me, are you guys your colleagues or are you independent with, in what schools? I'd like to just tell you things. Awesome. Great. Like it's like they do, you know, 
uh, differences. What's, what's in your inclusion toolbox, your supports, your resources? Think about that. How well are, are you supporting your classroom teachers? Um, if they're asking for training, specifically ask them what training do you need? And um, I think it's important to drill down to to drill down because it can be very overwhelming, right? Our hear from our classroom teachers often very overwhelming to have a student with um, sometimes multiple needs, very complex needs in their classroom. Um, so how, how best to support them? It starts with a mindset. Um, the next three slides will list out some ways to modify assessments to better accommodate for students with these differences through some, a variety of instructional approaches. So assessments and then instructional practices. Think differently, do differently. So we're looking at assessments. Um, when, I, when I go and talk to classroom teachers, I'll often say, we'll be talking about assessments and how to modify you know, possibilities uh, for students with learning disabilities. I'll say, what? Um, we ask the question, what's the goal of the assessment? What do you want? We're, so we're measuring the understanding of, of the material, right? What's the student understanding? Um, the way it can be assessed in a different way to still get that data and that information. Um, so we do a lot of brainstorming about that. And these are some of the ways that we have found to modify assessments. Still meeting learning targets, okay? But modifying them, it may look different. Change, consider changing the format. So a word bank, right, for fill in the blank questions. Or a um, limiting the multiple choice. So instead of five choices, give them two or three, right? Um, access to manipulatives. This was a big conversation we had with our teachers this year. Um, students with learning differences, if they're using manipulatives or any supports during instruction, they should have access to them during their assessment. Um, and that, that, was, that was something that we had to discuss and come to. Um, you know, there's the, the fair is not equal, or the, the well, I've, I've been given this assessment, how can I give a different one to a student with learning differences, or, or even attention differences? You know, someone with um, ADHD may need to have this test um, broken up into two days, right, to be able to focus and hone in on that content. Uh, so different ways to modify assessments. And sometimes I think our teachers maybe just need permission to do that um, and have a discussion around it, what we found. So let's move on to instructional tools. So instructional classroom accommodations. Everyone needs support to maximize their learning, right? We all need support. You need support. We need support to maximize our learning. So giving a variety, giving students choice access to a variety of instructional tools is important. Start with what the student can do, not can't. So what is their strength and build on that? Um, maybe start with, it, maybe we need to start thinking thinking differently. Um, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of resources out there. I think special educators also, your strength is to think creatively. So come alongside your general education teachers and start thinking creatively. Um, as, as you see, these are um, some instructional tools, accommodations. This would be written up in an accommodation plan, right? These aren't specific goals on an ISP or a student support plan. These are just accommodations that you want to document if they're using these tools to access their content. Okay. And then right in the next slide, you'll see a menu. This is a... Um, this is an example of a, a tic-tac-toe choice menu, right? So students love options. I think it's great to give them a choice on how they're being assessed or a project um, so that they can learn to build on their strengths. I think that's important for them to learn how to advocate for themselves. What do I need to help them learn best? How do, what do I need to show my understanding of this content to my teacher or my teacher? And lastly, finally, Let's take a look at the poo characters, okay? So this was a part of um, the conference that was just, I thought was so great, um, so I stole it. <laughs> look at the poo characters. We have Pooh, Eeyore, Piglet, Tigger, Owl, Rabbit, okay? Look at these characteristics here. What poo character are you? 
and maybe here, if you're here with a colleague, do you agree with their self-assessment? Do you agree with them? Or maybe you can tell your friend, this is what I think you are. This will characterize you. This is what I think you are. Now take a look at these character traits. Do you still think you're that character? These are the negative character traits. Also true of these characters that you had just identified yourself with. Notice the impact of focusing on someone's strengths first and instead of the weaknesses. There's power in strength-based learning. It's where the students see themselves as I can and I'm self-identifying myself at it, right? It's the positive starting with that. I think that's so powerful. Our students need to be reminded of that. If they have a learning attention or behavior difference, they know, right? Especially as they get older, this becomes such a challenge. Um, so what can you in your classroom or you in your school do to destigmatize, to get rid of that, and to normalize, and to, um, to capitalize on those strengths? And finally, so these would be um, the medical you know, diagnoses uh, or labels of the characters, right? And what we would find as a label of many of our students in their cumulative, right? So are we going to elevate them or deflate them by the label that we use? Um, and also the importance of using person-first language. This is a student with OCD who struggles with OCD or has OCD tendencies. This is a student um, who has high-functioning autism um, instead of this is autistic kid. Right? So instead of trying to fix the student, let's work toward improving our teaching, our environments, our schedules to enable support and to reach our students who are marginalized. The very last thing. Um, and this is optional, I, I know we're, we're doing good on time, uh, but leave when, leave when you must. This is Jonathan Mooney, he was another speaker who we heard live. Um, he struggled with an attention, executive functioning, was diagnosed with um, specific learning disability, dyslexia in early age. He did not learn how to read until he was 12. At risk, dumb, the special education kid were some of the names that he was called. Low expectations held him back. He graduated, get this, at Brown University with a major in English literature, right? A lot of audiobooks and spell check. <laughs> Some told him that he would be an, a teacher told him he would be an inmate someday. Instead, he's now an advocate uh, for students and a well known author and speaker. So he has written three books Normal Sucks, The Short Bus, Learning Outside the Lines. <coughs> He challenges us, I think, with a, with a question that, that sticks in the forefront of my mind when I think about him. How do we need to reframe our institutions, our schools, and instructional practices? How do we need to change the environment, fix the environment, instead of what we quickly go to the student? Changing that, or their schedule, their environment. So, listen to him. This is an eight-minute video. Allie and I are going to be over here. If you want to talk, come talk to us, answer any questions, and you are free to go whenever you like. Um, but this is it's a great video. If you can't watch it now, watch it some other time. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Jonathan and I'm a author, uh, inclusion, and learning activist, and social entrepreneur. All of this professional work really comes from my own personal experience of struggling in school. Uh, I was the kid who had such a hard time sitting still in elementary school that I spent most of the day chilling out with the janitor in the hallway. Uh, I was the kid who had such a hard time keeping his mouth shut in middle school that I grew up on a first name basis with Shirley, the receptionist, in the principal's office. And I was the kid in high school who had such a hard time learning to read particularly a torturous time reading out loud, that I spent most of my high school experience hiding in the bathroom to escape reading out loud with tears streaming down my face. I didn't learn to read until I was 12. I couldn't read until I was 12 years old. 
Uh, growing up, I had every label you could imagine. I was considered the uh, at-risk kid. Uh, I was considered the bad kid. And eventually, I became the special ed kid. I was diagnosed with dyslexia, or a language-based learning disability in fourth grade. Diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder in fifth grade. And I dropped out of school for about a year and a half in sixth grade. That year, when I left school, 12 years old, I struggled with a number of mental health challenges, anxiety, depression, and I had a plan for suicide. I spent about a year and a half in and out of a variety of different educational settings. <coughs> and when I finally returned to traditional school, I faced a lot of low expectations. I was told that I would flip burgers for a living, was told I'd be a high school dropout, and was told that I would most likely end up in jail or incarcerated. I went off to beat those odds, I went off to graduate from Brown University with an honors degree in English literature, went off to be a writer, uh, wrote my first book, Learning Outside the Lines, at the age of 21 at Brown, and went off to dedicate my professional life to building a more inclusive world for folks who live and learn differently. Uh, that fight to build a more inclusive world for cognitive and physical differences is really grounded in three uh, core values. Uh, first and foremost, I believe fundamentally that people like me have been misunderstood and wrongly labeled. We aren't people with disabilities. We are people with differences who experience disabilities in environments that aren't built or designed to accommodate and include those differences. You know, let's take ADD as a good example. You know, ADD is a difference in my life. It doesn't have to be a disability. There are good things about it. There are bad things about it. I'm not naive about the bad things that come with being ADD. I struggle with attention. I struggle with executive functioning. Don't let me do your taxes, right? Not a good use of my skill set, you know? But there's a flip side to that coin. There's a lot of good things that come with those challenges. Good research shows that folks with ADD are more entrepreneurial than the general population, are better problem solvers. So it's a difference that becomes disabled by the way it was treated. ADD wasn't my disability, being called the crazy bad kid and made to be uh, in the hallway all day long. That was my disability. Same is true with my so-called learning differences. You know, dyslexia, good things about it, bad things about it. Not naive about the bad things, I struggle with, with reading. Uh, I spell at a third grade level, but that's why God created spell check, right? There are good things that go hand in hand with those challenges. Uh, creativity uh, is correlated with learning differences, right? So dyslexia wasn't my disability. Being made to feel stupid, that's what disabled me. Growing up, uh, reading C-Spot Run in the, in the stupid reading group, uh, disabled me. Being segregated from my peers and being tracked as the kid who was less intelligent, those were my disabilities. And in all of my travels around the country, when I talk to folks with a continuum of differences, whether it's learning, intentional, cognitive, physical, it's not the difference that really holds them back, it's the way the difference is treated. We have institutionalized ableism in our schools, work, and community, and that's what disables individuals, not the differences they live with. Second core value that animates my work is the idea that we shouldn't be spending all of our time trying to fix people. There is a remediation industrial complex out there that has a diagnosis and a treatment for every single human difference. All of our energy is spent trying to fix people opposed to the environments or context people find themselves in. But it's that change that's the most profound that can happen in somebody's life, in our communities, in our society. In my life, I didn't fix my dyslexia to go off the ground. I accommodated that difference. You know, back in the day, it was a book on tape, right? It was so big, you had to put it in a backpack and plug it into a generator, right? But those accommodations allowed those strengths and talents to come to the forefront. It was a profound commitment embedded in the ADA and the IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, it's not about fixing people, but building more inclusive environments that, that embrace and elevate cognitive, cognitive and physical differences. Last and most importantly, core principle is this idea that every single human being, every person has a strength, gift, or talent. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my mom. My mom was dismissed a lot in her life. 
She wasn't educated, she wasn't wealthy, she wasn't tall, she had this very high-pitched, funny voice that sounded like Mickey Mouse, so people didn't take her seriously, but people dismissed my mom at their own peril, because my mom cursed like a truck driver. If you were a principal or a teacher, you did not want cursing Mickey Mouse in your office. But that's where she was every day when things were going wrong for her son. Fighting for my right to be included in education, but also fighting for my right to have an education that wasn't just about fixing my problem, but also about helping me understand my strengths, gifts, and talents. I've spent the last 20 years of my life listening to stories of people who thrive living and learning outside the lines, and the one thing all those stories have in common is those are people who haven't fixed their problem, they've unleashed their gifts, and they've scaled their strengths, and they're building a life that's all about what is right with them, not what is wrong with them. And the last thing I want to say is running through all this work is a profound fight against the idea that there is a normal that we should enforce in our schools, in our culture, a normal mind, a normal mind, or a normal body. I see my work as fighting against that, whether it's my book, The Short Bus, or my book, Running Outside the Lines, or a nonprofit I founded called Eye to Eye. It's about reimagining what normal is. Because the reality is, the only normal people are people you don't know very well. Difference is paradoxically the norm. And the disability rights movement, the inclusion movement, is fighting for every single human being's right to be share the slide deck with you to, to um, if you want to present it to your school or your administrator, please um, just email us. We'll share it with you. 